This podcast is brought to you by Estee Lauder Company's UK and Ireland's breast cancer campaign. The campaign helped to make the opening of Future Dreams House possible and continues to raise millions to help end breast cancer. The house offers practical and emotional support to those diagnosed with the disease. Hello, I'm Victoria Derbyshire, and age 46, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was a blow. I thought my luck had run out. I'm still here, thanks to the NHS and the fact that my cancer was treatable. Welcome to the second series of And Then Came Breast Cancer, a podcast brought to you by the Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity. It's for you and all the challenges you will try to overcome having been diagnosed. The lows, the highs, and also it's for everyone in your life who's been affected too. This episode is called Breast Cancer When You're Really Young. And I have three women who are going to talk about how this happened to them. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hi. Please do introduce yourselves. Hi, my name is Lucy. Um, I'm 29 and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Hello, I'm Charlotte. I was diagnosed with triple positive breast cancer last November. What does that mean, Charlotte? Um, triple positive breast cancer means that um, the receptors were um, estrogen receptive and progesterone receptive and also HER2. So I had all three, lucky me. <laughs> what does What's the significance of that, just, just for um, people who are listening who may not know? So for me, it just means that um, I am fortunate in the sense that um, after my initial treatment, I am able to have other treatments such as um, hormone therapy, um, that will basically hopefully help print it coming back. Hi, I'm Fran. I'm a cancer exercise and rehabilitation specialist. I'm 27 years old uh, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer myself. Okay, I want to ask you all, and I'll start with you, Lucy, and just knit round all of you. Before you were diagnosed, what age did you think women got breast cancer? 60s. Um, for me, I thought it was probably 40s to 50s and above. Yeah, for me, it was similar, about 40, 50, but only because I actually knew someone that was diagnosed when I was younger. And so I watched that happen. But it was around 40, 50 years old that I thought that's when you would then develop it. And Lucy, how old were you when you were diagnosed? So I was actually 26 when I got diagnosed. Charlotte? I was also 26. Fran? I was... Sorry, I was 25. Okay. So I want to ask each of you about your reaction at being diagnosed at that age. Fran, why don't you start? Sure. Um, So I was actually misdiagnosed when I was 24. Um, I initially went to get my scan at 24, but I was told that I was too young for cancer and that it was going to be hormonal. Um, it was absolutely fine. Breast tissue was normal. So I wouldn't need the scan. And why did you, and why so, did you go for a scan? What, what had you Because seen? I found a lump. Okay. So I'd found a lump. I'd gone to my GP. She'd assessed me and said, yes, there is a lump there. Had discussed with me the fact that it could be potentially cancer. So I went to the hospital with that in my mind. Um, but then I was judged for being too young. I was 24. I was fit, healthy, and the scan wasn't done. So for 18 months, I thought that I had normal breast tissue. And then I developed a dimpling of the skin last year. Um, and I went and got a rapid diagnostic test. And at 25, 
um, I was told that I had stage four breast cancer by this point because it had then spread to my brain and to my liver. God, how did you react? Uh, incredibly numb, I think is kind of the best way that I can describe it in that moment when she told me initially when I was told that I had breast cancer, they thought that it was going to be easily treatable. The diagnostics had come back to say that it was hormonal responsive. So they said that it would be easily treatable. It was quite a non-aggressive cancer. And then I then had in the space of two weeks, I had seven different scans, each one throwing up a different problem until I got my final diagnosis that it was stage four. And I had two other tumors, one growing out of my skull and one in my liver. Um, at that moment, I just, and I then got told that I had two years to live. Oh my so in God. that moment, yeah, I kind of sat there thinking, what on earth do I do by the time that I'm 27? At best, she said that I could have until I was 30. I was like, what, what do you do when you're 30? Mm. You know, I have my whole life ahead of me. I had career goals. I had aspirations. I wanted to have a dog, you know, those sort of things. And, um, and it was getting taken away from me. I was incredibly angry, obviously, naturally, because of my misdiagnosis before. And the fact that a year before I had, you know, I knew my body, I knew that something was wrong, but I wasn't getting listened to. So in that moment, I was incredibly angry. Um, but I just felt an overwhelming feeling of numbness and I didn't quite know how to process it at that time. And when you just told us, Fran, that you were told you had two years to live, both Lucy and Charlotte just shook their heads in kind of disbelief. Lucy, how, what were you thinking when Fran was telling us that? I just think it's it's incredible how, um, you know, listening to a friend's story and how it was missed, um, you know, the first thing that I thought was, well, what would have been the difference had they have forgotten about her age mm. and just mm. gone, okay, there's a woman with a lump in front of us, let's try and find out why it's there. If they had looked at it like that and stopped thinking about age and what age you should or shouldn't get it, it things could have been different. Do you think that from... Yeah, and I've changed that. So I actually, um, I asked why this happened um, and why I wasn't listened to. And I got told that it isn't policy to scan someone under the age of 45 if they come to you with a lump, but it's policy to scan someone over the age of 45 if they have a lump. So the fact that, because a young cancer patient is anyone under the age of 45, technically, apparently. Um, and I went in there as a 24-year-old personal trainer, um, no family history, not smoker, no drinker, you know, all the things that you think that you would reduce your risk. I went in there like that and I was just judged for not having it without even actually having an investigation. Um, whereas I think if I went in there older and a lump, I would have got scanned instantly. That's you, my belief. Of course you would. Of course you would. Um, Charlotte, tell us about your situation when you were diagnosed. Yeah, so I was diagnosed last November. Um, I was actually in the US when I found a small lump in the shower one night. And admittedly, I did check my breasts, but probably not as often as I should have. Um, maybe three times a year, I'd remember. Um, but as soon as I felt the lump, and mine was fairly small, it was 2.5 centimetres. But as soon as I felt it, I had a gut feeling that it was something really bad. And I'm, I'm the same as you, Fran, like I don't, I don't drink very regularly. I don't smoke. I have no family history. And I was actually feeling really, really fit and healthy at the time. So I don't know why my mind instantly went to cancer, but it did. And 
I had a very, well, a, a kind of similar thing in that I went to see five different doctors in the US and five different doctors told me that I was too young to have breast cancer. And it was just me continually going back that I think did it. And so, so j- of- sorry, just, you know, when people say, if you're not happy, get a second opinion. You got a second opinion, a third opinion, a fourth opinion, fourth a, a fifth, fifth opinion. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it was it was a really horrible time. And, you know, the, the healthcare system in America is obviously very different mm. to ours. And it was very unfamiliar to me. Um, so it was incredibly stressful. But I just this gut feeling just kept carrying me through. And actually, the, the fifth doctor did say to me, she kind of assessed me and she had a really worried look on her face and then she asked how old I was and I said 26 and she went oh okay I'm not I'm not so concerned but we'll we'll kind of put you in for a biopsy anyway and thank god she did put me in for that biopsy because otherwise you know things could have been very different Mm. and Lucy I think you think about the fact that you went for to be checked and actually it was sort of a bit random you feel kind of lucky about that tell us about that yeah, so I'm going to put this out there right from the right from the beginning. I had never ever checked my breasts for the first 26 years of my life. I had never checked my breasts because I didn't think I needed to because I was young, mm. I was 26. It did it never crossed my mind. I thought it's something that I would start doing once I'm 40 and had my children and I don't know why, I just that's what the image I had in my mind. So I happened to be in my bed sleeping and I'm I've got quite big breasts and I was um, turning over and as I turned over I cupped my breasts you know like just for comfort Mm. I cupped my breasts and I put my thumb straight onto a lump a tiny little lump right by my nipple and I just thought oh I've got a cyst so unlike Charlotte the first thing that came to my brain was I've got a cyst Mm. because I know a lot of young women that get cysts quite a lot stress I'd recently started a new job so in my mind I thought okay it was about three in the morning and it's so it's crazy because the thing that was the driving force behind me going to my GP was not my fear or the fact that I'd found a lump. It was actually the fact that it was my day off. And I thought it's so hard to get a GP appointment since it's my day off. When I do get up in the morning, when I do the school run, I should ring my GP and just try and get that morning appointment. You know, you say to your GP, oh, it's an emergency yeah. so that you can get seen that day. Too right. in, yeah. my br- in my mind, <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, I'm just going to tell a little porky and tell them it's an emergency so that I can get seen today. Mm. And that's what I did. I got seen that day about 9.30. My GP examined it and said, look, the best thing to do is go to the breast clinic and get it looked at. And I thought, yeah, fine, no worries. That's not a problem. My appointment was in a week's time. I told everybody that, I, you know, you know, like, your friends will phone you and say, like, how's your day? I'll say, yeah, I just did a school run. I went to the GP because I found a lump in my breast. So I've got an appointment in a week's time. So I told so many people because it never occurred to me that it could be cancer at that stage still. I just thought it was like a normal thing. Like, you know, mm. um, oh, I've got a pain in my leg. It was that sort of thing yeah. to me. So when I went back um, a week's time, I was with my sister. Um, we went in to go and see the, um, it was a surgeon and a nurse that we saw. So the nurse asked me to undress and said the surgeon will come in and, and examine me. So we were chatting away, laughing and joking. The surgeon came in, introduced himself and examined like my neck, my chest, my breast, my armpits. And it took him a little while to find where the lump was. Um, I only found it because I was laying back in, in bed, standing up. I couldn't feel it as prominently at that time. Um, I didn't have any 
other symptoms, no skin dimpling, no inverted nipple, not a thing, um, just a tiny little lump. So when he put his finger on it, he said, oh, this, you know, this is a, this is a petit pois, tiny, tiny little thing. Mm. It's probably nothing. And you have no family history. You're only 26. So, um, you know, it's probably nothing. Thankfully, my sister was there and she sort of said, okay, but you know, how do we know it's nothing? Mm. What I need, I need to leave here with some kind of proof, some kind of evidence that it's nothing. And he said, well, no worries. What we can do is we can do an ultrasound. So if Lucy pops across to, you know, the other side, um, another room, she'll get an ultrasound and the, the, the doctor will show her on the screen and he'll let her know if it's, I don't remember which way it went, but something like if it was shadow, then it was this. And if it wasn't, it's something else. So that's what I was expecting. Popped across to the other room. There was a nurse in there as a chaperone. And they did the ultrasound like they would if you were having a baby. So they put the, the cold gel on and they're just going around. And I just sort of laid there waiting. And it was very silent. No one said anything. And I guess that was my first indication of like, something's not quite right. Um, did you I still see it on, think, sorry. Yeah, go I was going to ask if you saw, if you actually saw your lump on the screen. I didn't get a chance to. Um, they, the nurse was kind of blocking the screen. So that's what I was expecting. I thought they were going to turn it around. You know, like when you're having a baby, they mm. turn the screen and they show you and they're like, there's your baby. I was expecting to have like a, there's your lump. Um, but that's not what happened. And mm. the nurse said, oh, we need to take some of the fluid um, and send it off. We need to do a biopsy. And I was like, oh. So the other surgeon didn't mention anything about a biopsy, but okay. So they numbed my breast. They did it there and then. Um, and they asked me to come back in a week's time. So when I did come back a week later, it was the same kind of thing again. This was my second indication that something was wrong. When the nurse said, like, you need to undress again and let the surgeon examine you. And I thought something's obviously up because there's no reason for them to examine me to give me the results. Um, mm. So, yeah, the, the surgeon sort of examined me all over again, the same sort of process. And he said, um, I, he took my hand and he said, um, I heard you have a little boy. And that was being a mother. That was the thing that told me he's going to mm. give me bad news straight after this That's like so hard. yeah it was horrible um but the the way his intentions were really pure he held my hand really tight and he said look um it is breast cancer but it's really early stages and it'll probably just be a small surgery and radiotherapy and that's it and I just sort of sat there smiling and I was like, thank you. Because <laughs> I just didn't know how to respond. Really? I didn't mm. know how to respond. So mine was similar when I went in um, the second time. So when I went in last year, um, I actually apologised to the surgeon that was looking at me to start with because I thought I was wasting his time. Like I knew that I had this dimple, but because for 18 months I'd been in my mind, I was like, oh, it's normal because, you know, I've been told that it's normal, so it's fine. Um, when I went in there and it was in the middle of COVID and I would kind of felt that I was wasting their time. So I was, I'm really sorry. He examined me, sat and told me to come and sit down in the chair. And I thought I was in trouble. I was like, I'm really sorry if I've wasted your time. And he was like, no, uh, I need you to go next door and I need you to have a, an ultrasound next door. There's a radiographer going to be waiting for you. And I need you to have a biopsy, explain what the procedure would be. And I was like, okay, fine. Thinking that maybe this was just routine, went next door and as they were doing the bar the uh, ultrasound, she actually turned the screen the other way so that I couldn't see it. Oh, and wow. then, yeah, and I was kind of like, okay, that's strange. Um, they did the biopsy, told me to go then back into the other room with the consultant again. So I went back in, sat down. And then it was when he just looked at me and he said, I'm, I'm going to be really honest with you. 
um, I am concerned what I felt. And the radiographer has just emailed me through from the other room to say what she's seen on the ultrasound is concerning. You need to come back in three days with a, with a chaperone of your own. Um, and it was at that moment where I was like, you don't just ask someone to come in yeah. with a chaperone if there's nothing to worry about. And that, but that, until that, that chaperone point, just means a friend or a relative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah friend or, yeah, 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 yeah. So I took my mum um, to go in with me. Mm. Um, and then when we went down, when we went there and then he said to me, the results are back and yes, it is cancer. Um, but until that point, I was like, oh, I'm really sorry for being here. Like, I don't, mm. you know, I'm but sure it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, I don't want to be doing, you know, a, um, mountain over molehill or anything like that, mm. but I just feel like I should check this out because the dimple's a bit strange. Um, and I'd known from the year before when I'd looked into kind of obviously, because I'm similar to you, Lucy, I never checked my breasts. Um, well, I don't I was, think you're unusual in that. I mean, how many? No, how many I was 24. Yeah, how many young know? women do? I mean, yeah. I, I never did. You, no. fit, you, you, you don't get taught it. You don't you know, get, you get taught, taught it. it. You're not aware oh. of it. You feel invincible. Unless it's in your family, then yes. you, you you feel pretty invincible. Charlotte, like, you were you told us you were in the states. I think I, I think I'm right in summarising by saying life was great. You just got married. When you got yeah. your diagnosis, eventually. Were you on a plane straight back home to the UK? Yes, I was. Um, I actually was told over the phone. Um, and when I think back, it could have been a very horrible um, situation because the doctor didn't ask me whether I was at home, whether I was sitting down, whether I was driving, whether I was with anyone. So it was just luck that I was at our apartment and my husband was with me. Um, but I think when I first got told, I, I actually it almost felt like validation for me because mm. I was so mm. convinced and it took six weeks from when I found my lump to when I was diagnosed. So in that six weeks, I had the same thing as you, Fran. I thought, am I just going crazy? Am I wasting everyone's time? And I think there is also this thing around, you know, young women and pain and, you know, young women being seen to just be fussy about things. Or So that was in the back of my mind. So when she actually told me, I felt like, okay, finally, I know what it is and I can deal with it. Mm. Um, so I had to call my mum and that conversation was probably the hardest I've ever had to have, um, telling my mum over the phone. And my family were just incredible. They they managed to book me on a flight straight home and I was very lucky that that was literally about two weeks before that is when the flights opened back up. Wow. So it was incredibly lucky, but it, I don't really remember that flight home, to be honest. I was just... Yeah, it was my head was all over the place. <laughs> Can I ask all of you, do you feel it's unfair? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah. very unfair. So how do you deal with that in your head? I I personally channel my frustration and my anger into trying to make a difference now. So I'm very mm. open about it on my social media. Um, and I'm starting like a few different projects and stuff for myself to try and create more awareness of young cancer, the fact that it does happen to us, the fact that we should get listened to. Um, and it doesn't cost much to do an ultrasound. It actually costs way more in terms of clinical negligence claims and all the things that happen. Um, whereas if you just do an ultrasound, then you'll see it most of the time they'll see it mm. sometimes yes you have to have a biopsy too but I think when you look at the costs of that versus the cost of a life um mm. you know well, it's a no-brainer no of course it is yeah Lucy exactly how do you deal with it I'm so I'm the same as Fran I feel like at the time that I was going through it there weren't um 
enough people and there wasn't a lot of representation for young women and especially young black women. So um, I kind of try to be the person that I needed when mm. I was going through it. And I know that, you know, if I keep campaigning and I keep spreading awareness and I talk about it all of the time and I know my family probably get sick of it. Um, I can go anywhere and I will find a way. That's like my latest skill. I will find <laughs> a way to bring in breast cancer really casually. Me even too. At work. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, so I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2019. Um, anyway, I just... <laughs> I talk about it. It really shuts people up, doesn't it? When you say it does, because they don't expect it. They're like, they look at you like, oh, (laughs) it's quite fun sometimes. Do people do? So I, I bring it up everywhere I go. Talk about it everywhere I go, and I just feel like the more I speak about it, the more people kind of think about it and I get messages of people saying that you know because of what you told me yesterday or the day before I checked my breasts or Mm. I've told my mum to go and Mm. get to not miss her her appointment and those are the things that make me feel like not that it was worth it but at least if I'm going to have to have this awful experience at least I can make the experience better for other people yeah Mm. Charlotte you agreed with the other two that you felt it was unfair so how do you deal with it um, I think I, I did a lot of soul searching at the beginning because, you know, for for all of us, I, I imagine you kind of at this age, you just think this is the furthest thing from what you imagine happening. And it did seem unfair to me. You know, I like we've said, I have lived a healthy life. I don't overindulge in anything. I try to be a good person and, you know, eat, eat my veg and exercise. And it, it just kind of makes you feel like, you know, everyone asks the why me question but I tried not to when I was first diagnosed because every time I felt myself thinking that I reminded myself okay if not me then who because you know no one deserves this and I think that I have joked you know amongst my friends and I've got two younger sisters as well I have joked about you know it's a good job it was me because I'm tough enough to handle it (laughs) (laughs) and but yeah I agree with the other two about you know raising awareness is my way of feeling like okay, I can take this bad situation and make something relatively good out of it. And like Lucy was saying, when when anyone messages me and says, you know, I never checked before, but now I do, it makes me, it just makes me feel warm inside because yeah. it makes yeah. me feel like I'm just doing, it's just a tiny thing. And even if I can help one person, then that's a good, that's a good day for me. Did it put pressure on your marriage, Charlotte? Yes, absolutely. Um, we were, we, we got married in the March and we already had a drama because of our wedding being cancelled. Our big wedding was cancelled because of COVID. Um, and then literally a few months later, this happened. Um, it has put an immense amount of pressure on our relationship, um, especially because I obviously had to come home for treatment. There was no way I, I wouldn't be here if I had stayed there. Um, but my husband obviously isn't able to be here. He's, he's He works in America, so it's in, incredibly difficult and we... We hardly see each other at the moment. It's really, really hard. Can I ask Fran and Charlotte about what thoughts went through your head regarding having children? Um, For me, the fertility side of this has by far been the hardest part. You know, um, losing my hair, I, I dealt with it. I thought, okay, it'll grow back. Um, losing my breast, I thought, okay, it's just a breast. Um but when it came to the fertility, I was absolutely devastated. And every time, you know, every time I see a pregnancy announcement or a baby being born, it it stabs a little bit because it just it reminds me that I may not 
ever have that. And having children has always been so important to me. Um, I've got lots of, like I said, I've got two younger sisters, lots of younger cousins, and it's always been a no-brainer. Like, I absolutely want to have children. So I was lucky enough to have IVF before my chemotherapy started. Um, So I do have seven embryos waiting for me. Um, But it's just, you know, obviously there's no guarantee that they will be successful. And I'm having to be put in, well, I'm in a clinical menopause at the moment, and I will be for the next 10 years. So all of this plays on my mind every single day and I do worry about it a lot but I guess I just try and hope for the best and hope that you know it figures things get figured out. I suppose we should explain chemotherapy is the uh, a drug infusion that kills the bad cells but also kills the good cells and it stops your periods and that's why mm-hmm. you and others uh, have embryos taken out and frozen. Fran, mm-hmm. what what went through your head regarding having children? So I was actually kind of the reverse of Charlotte, where I hadn't thought about having children at all. Um, I didn't think that I really wanted to have children. It wasn't ever really a desire for me. Um, I'm a, I was a pre and postnatal personal trainer as well before. Um, and I loved kids, like kids were great, but I just never had that desire to do it myself. I quite liked passing them back at the end of the day and, giving, <laughs> you know, giving them back to the mums um, or kind of like holding them while I was peating the mum, be like, oh yeah, they're cute, but there you go, needs a nappy change. Um, and kind of never thought that they were going to be in my realm I was like now I'll be fine with dogs I'll just have Mm. dogs um holidays you know all that sort of thing and um I couldn't freeze any eggs they they said to me that um it actually really wasn't under one of my options because a we needed to start chemo now Mm. it was an immediate start well I had brain surgery first but then as soon as that was done it was like right straight on to chemo um but also for me, I was just kind of, I don't want, I felt a bit unnerved about the fact that mine had scored the highest on um, estrogen and progesterone receptors. So I didn't want to inject myself with any hormones sure. anyway. And then mm. they kind of said to me, we can't actually, we need to start chemo now. Mm. Um, so all the way through chemo, I was having Zolodex injections, um, which is an injection that you have every four weeks and it shuts your ovaries down. Um, that was essentially to stop hormones but also to um potentially protect my ovaries and my eggs from the chemo once I finished chemo I still stayed on those injections um and now Mm. I'm on tamoxifen so similar to Charlotte I'm also in a medical induced menopause um and I'm also on a targeted therapy drug which I can only take if I don't have periods so I still have to have the Zolodex injections okay um and since going through treatment it's kind of like if someone says to you you can't have that piece of chocolate mm-hmm. like you really want that piece of chocolate um it kind of feels like that now like some now that potentially some they're saying to me you will never be able to have children now when I work with my clients um or like when you know some of my friends now are having children and things like that when I'm seeing that happen now I feel pretty gut-wrenchingly sad um mm. at the thought and I kind of I randomly feel broody oh. and I'm mm. sort of like oh I'm I feel like I want to have a child now and I've never had that before, but I think it's maybe a combination of the fact that I'm getting older and I'm sort of getting to the, yeah. you know, that kind of thing as well. Um, like when I was growing up, my friend would say to me, Oh, you wait until you get to 30. When you get to 30, mm-hmm. then you want a kid. Um, and now I'm sort of like, not well, I'm not near 30, but I'm kind of, you know, getting towards that direction. Yeah. Maybe it's that, but also I think it's just the fact that when someone says you can't have that, it's like, 
Oh, I really want that now. <laughs> Lucy, how old is your little boy? My son is 10. Okay. And when you hear Charlotte and Fran talk about the fact that it may not happen for them, how does it make you feel about already having a, a child? So I, when I had my son, I was 18. Um, I, well, I, when I got pregnant, I was 18. And I... It was I was in the middle of uni, so it wasn't the easiest choice to make. Um, but I knew that I wanted my son from the minute I knew I was pregnant. Um, but since then I I kinda I guess I kinda waited. I wanted to make sure that the next time I have a baby, it would be the right time. Mm. And anyone that's a parent will know that there just isn't a right time, is there? It kind of just happens. Um so for me, I purposely didn't want to get pregnant. And then like Charlotte and like Fran um I also am on a medically induced uh, menopause and it's different for me than it is for them because obviously I do have a child and I am so grateful and it kind of made me feel like there was a reason I had my son when I did Mm. you know I feel like thank god I did have my son when I did Mm. because what would I do if I couldn't have kids? And everyone that knows me knows how much I love kids. And when I was a child myself, I, I'd tell everybody that I'm going to have 10 children. And <laughs> I, any kind of family function, wherever the babies are, follow the sound of crying babies. I am yeah. there. I've got everyone's baby. I'm like the <laughs> nanny, always going to look after people's children. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's, I can resonate with some of what, you know, what Fran and Charlotte are saying. Mm. Um, I know those feelings and I know how, painful it is as well yeah um and people do say to me like well do you know what you're lucky at least you've got one and I just think how dare you yeah. how dare mm. you it doesn't work like that mm. yeah I still I can still mourn my potential loss or you know what might not be um, it's having that choice taken away I think as well just exactly that's what feels so unfair like we were I mean for me personally I was forced to make decisions about my fertility in the space of a week and yeah. you know how can you how can you comprehend that on top of everything else that you're trying to wrap your head around also it's like okay and again I, I say this knowing full well that I was very very fortunate to be offered IVF but you know it's it's so overwhelming yeah oh my god I feel like this is the bit that no one really speaks about Mm. so I I had my eggs harvested as well um and I I know I'm fortunate I know I'm lucky um what I also know is that no one had told me that like you know I was also triple positive meaning that I was my 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 natural hormones in my body were feeding the cancer I didn't know this at the point which I decided to go ahead with the IVF so I was never told that, you know, the hormones in your body are feeding your cancer. So, you know, going ahead with um, harvesting your eggs, you're now pumping your body with extra hormones. Mm -hmm. No one told me that. I didn't know that. I just had in my mind... I still want to have children. I'm not done yet. So, so just just yeah. to explain a little bit, I think I'm right in saying I haven't had IVF. Uh, my sister-in-law has. They, I think you are are given extra estrogen in order to stimulate the ovaries to produce eggs. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Exactly. And actually, if if the hormones like estrogen are fueling your cancer, you definitely don't want that. I had a really tough time actually with my IVF. I ended up having 2.5 rounds because it just wasn't clicking with me. And I think, you know, I had 
I tried the first time, got halfway through, and they said, oh, you've only got one egg growing. It's really strange. So we're going to terminate this one and, you know, just let the egg be released and, you know, the normal way, and we'll start again. Mm. Uh, when did it the second time, the whole way through, had the egg collection, and, again, there were only two eggs growing, and they were really confused. I was obviously devastated because I thought, yep, this is me, that's it. I'm done never having children um but they explained to me that I, I was put on letrozole which is um a hormone blocker I was on and, letrozole too yeah so but I was the same I didn't really appreciate that this could potentially be a risk um because I was hormone positive so I just went ahead with it and you know after the kind of second round had kind of failed they said to me um it it's probably because of the fact that you're on letrozole you know it's it's kind of interacting and not really yeah. going anywhere so they had to tweak my um stimulation drug and then that's when the second egg collection they managed to get like 12 um but that that was that hiccup that bump in the road was just awful for me because it's just the emotional trauma of it all as well yeah. and people forget that you're pumped with hormones and mm. i think ivf for any woman is already going to be a it can be a traumatic experience it's emotionally draining but when you are going through that process and you're not getting a baby at the end it's so different I remember sitting in the hospital in UCLH and you when you're doing the this process you go to the hospital every other day to get an mm. internal scan um, and I was still working so I would turn up with my laptop and all the women around me were turning up with either babies in buggies or they were pregnant or with their partners. And mm. their experience to mine was so different. I was sat there, like, opening my laptop, to reading emails and preparing to hop on the train and go to work. Um, and I remember one day I got there and I just, I could, from, from the minute I got on the train, I could feel myself, like, filled with emotion. And I walked in and there were so many babies everywhere and women with twins and you know, there was a lady and her baby wouldn't stop crying and I offered to hold her baby for her for a bit and I it took me back to when my son was small and, you know, rocking her baby and getting mm. her baby to stop crying and I handed the baby back and closed my laptop. I went into the toilet, I rolled up my jacket and I just sobbed oh, into God. my coat. The, the, the emotion was just too much. I just couldn't mm. kind of handle it knowing that I was there for a what if or a mm. just in case yeah. the chemotherapy completely obliterates your ovaries let's do this it's just yeah. it's a horrible experience when you're doing it for that reason I don't know about you girls as well but like because obviously so I haven't harvested mine but like they do say that there's like a potential chance maybe you know I might get lucky um but I, I am on the hormonal treatment for at least 10 years so yeah. that will take me until I'm 35 yeah. um and then so by that point, then you kind of obviously have to wait for it to basically like get out of your system. Mm. And then even if you then you start trying, then you kind of like, you know, it might take like a few years really to sort of like see if it works, um, which obviously then nears me to like 40. But even if I was to get pregnant, for me, I it scares me because I just think like, well, obviously when you, when you are pregnant, you get this influx of hormones. hormones yeah. Mm. So I'm like, well, does anyone know if that's then going to cause bad, you know, a bad response yeah. for me? Like even if I am clear of cancer for mm. those 10 years, um, which obviously would be fantastic. Can I ask like, you, Fran, sorry, just, just, yeah. You said right at the beginning, an oncologist told you you had two years to live. Yes. Now you're telling us that you're on tamoxifen for 10 years. Yeah. So can you explain that? 
Yeah, we'll go back. Yeah, mm. so I was originally told that I had two years to live um, by my first oncologist. Mm. So when I was first diagnosed, my first oncologist told me that I had two years to live. I didn't want to hear that. Um, and I didn't want to just be put on palliative treatment. Um, and I felt like I had a lot of fight in me and I wanted someone to back me that Good was going to go all the way. Um, so I moved hospitals and then I moved to the Royal Marsden. Mm -hmm. um and so I then started my treatment there um and so I had brain surgery to remove the tumor I then started chemotherapy had that for six months then we did radiotherapy on my skull and then we then started hormonal therapy so my oncologist basically was like we're going to throw everything at your body mm. prepare yourself and let's just get it done and I was like mm. do it like just do it do whatever you need to do let's just get it um and I turned 27 in September and the week before I turned 27 they told me that I was in remission oh my so, god wow. that's yeah. incredible so oh my god. it kind of went like a full 360 um so I am hopefully on the drug for 10 years because I obviously in my mind I'm like well if I'm on the drug for 10 years and that's great because at, at the beginning I thought I had yeah. two mm. right um, okay I've got I've yeah. got I've got I've got I feel like I've still got a million questions so let me whiz through some your friends at this stage in your life, I'm guessing they're, I don't know, getting married, buying flats, houses, renting, whatever, children, dogs. Is that true? And if so, is that difficult for you? Mm, I've I've really struggled with this um, because I think up until this point, like I've been incredibly fortunate. I've had a very you know, my life has been very smooth up until this point. I, you know, I did everything in the way that is expected, you know, did well at school, went to university, got a good job. It was all, you know, found someone I love, got married. It was, it just all went really smoothly. And now I just feel like every, it's, cancer has impacted every single aspect of my life. There isn't a single part of my life that has been untouched. And I'm, I'm never jealous of anyone else's accomplishments at all it's just emotionally taxing I think to see everyone around you seeming I mean I know everyone has issues in their own lives that they're dealing with and it's all relative mm -hmm. but for me having you know being surrounded by that I, I'm in contact with older women that have had breast cancer at the same time as me and they always say to me like I don't I don't understand how you're so positive when everyone around you is leaping and bounding forward and for us it just feels like we're stuck treading water and we can't really move forward um so that's been really really tough have any of your friends not been in touch because they are getting on with your lives yeah I've I, I mean I've got a fantastic group of friends a really big group of friends from school still but there are definitely a quite a few people in my life that you know I considered fairly good friends that have and there's this term that goes around in the community like cancer ghosting and yeah. that has definitely happened to me that's like definitely that's people. a thing is it yeah, yes absolutely yeah. okay absolutely. go on Lucy have you experienced it oh yeah so I'm I'm always known for being really friendly really bubbly really lively and I I think people didn't even give me a chance to react to cancer before they decided she's going to change. Her personality will change. She'll be really wow. miserable. She'll be really low and really down. And we don't really want to be around that. Um, and it, it is completely selfish. But at the same time, I get that people don't want to be around sadness and what they deem to be like death. Wow. So, you, well, you are really understanding, Lucy. <laughs> Seriously. I mean... <laughs> 
personally I wouldn't do it but yeah I, I definitely have lost um, a couple of friends because they just they didn't have the the courage the compassion yeah the kindness yeah the yeah. big heart to speak that... to me and and you know listen to what was going on and they didn't even give me a chance to show them that you know it's every single day isn't like like that mm. yeah, yeah we have our down days we do and generally cancer patients we keep those days to ourselves that's the mm. truth we don't want to burden other people but yeah. I'm still Lucy I'm still the same person yes I might be bold and I might not have eyebrows and I might not be able to get my eyelashes to stick on because there's nothing to hold them up <laughs> but I'm still the same person but mm. I, I for some people you can't explain that to them and they just choose to kind of slowly yeah. back away and then you realize actually that person just doesn't want to be around anymore no because their lives are going well and they just think okay i can't let negativity into my life yes. so sorry about that yeah or, or, they, also, or they can't cope with negativity sorry frank yeah. go ahead yeah it's kind of so it's actually a topic that i've spoken out about a lot because it happened to me pretty considerably like um two of my people that I viewed as like my best, best friends completely disappeared off the face of the earth when I was diagnosed and went through all through treatment. And I still haven't heard from them today. Wow. And it was something that really hurt me. Um, and at the beginning I took it, I blamed myself. I was like, is there something like wrong with me? Like, is it because I've got cancer? Like, do they think that I'm going to be contagious? Like, or is it the fact of, you know, like what you were saying, Lucy, like, do they think that I'm just going to be negative all the time? And wanting to talk about it which is the complete opposite of what I actually want I just want my friends to be normal with me mm. um but I was very open about the fact that it happened and the response that I actually got was um people actually were also saying that it's because they don't know what to say and they feel yeah. that they're going to say the wrong thing and I was like you actually can't say the wrong thing really like it's actually better to say anything than to say nothing yeah. getting ghosted and having someone say absolutely nothing to you don't you is think heartbreaking. Do, do you ever think that's just an excuse sometimes yeah, yeah I think because so. it doesn't take much just to send mm. a text and say to you you know thinking of you yeah. that's exactly. all you need yeah exactly. it doesn't take much does it no but you do get I, I have found a lot that even now actually even since going into remission and things like that I kind of have felt that maybe people that even some of the people that really supported me in treatment then kind of disappeared and I'm like it's not over mm. it's a different like just, type of ghosting yeah, isn't it now I, yeah yeah because yeah. like I'm not yeah okay I'm not in active treatment like I'm not going into hospital every week and getting infused but I'm still in treatment and even if I wasn't the emotional effects of it are really difficult like you were saying about you know the kind of the different stages in your life and things like that like financially cancel floored me I've been mm. working since I was 15 saving up and it completely floored me. I had to use all my savings and everything just to pay my rent and get through because I'm self-employed and um, obviously COVID didn't help with that situation either. Mm. But now seeing all of my friends kind of, and they go like, oh, I'm saving at the moment because I'm going to buy a house and I'm going to do this. And I'm like, that's great. All of my savings went into <laughs> yeah. last night. Saving your life. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Charlotte, you talked about the, the pressure on your marriage. Do you mind me asking you, Fran and Lucy, briefly, are you with someone? Are, have you yeah. dated? Are you single? Yeah, so I'm in a relationship um, and it's, uh, yeah, someone that I've been in a relationship with since I was 15. Wow. Minus a little break. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we had like a bit of a break, but then, yeah, so we have, I, you know, he's literally seen me like at all mm. like, ends of it. So it was which was great for me. Like I didn't mind him seeing me at my worst, yeah. um, but it's definitely, 
it is definitely something that has put a lot of pressure on the relationship for me in like an intimacy point of view as well, because having all of your hormones stripped, I have no libido whatsoever. I don't even think about it. Like it doesn't even cross mm. my mind. So for me, like that just doesn't even, like that's just radar. not even a thing. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. just not a thing. Like, and even if he, I was, is he cool with that? He's really, yeah, he's really understanding. Mm. I'm very, like, we're very, I'm very open with it. So I, you know, I do speak to him about it and I do say, you know, but it was really heartbreaking for me to hear actually when I did speak to him about it. And he said, he did say to me, I just worry sometimes that you don't find me attractive. Oh, and that God. really broke my heart yeah. because oh, I was no. like, it's not that at all. I do. And like, love you to bits. Mm. And, you know, if it wasn't the case that medically I've literally had all of my hormones stripped from my body and I just don't think about that part of the relationship, Lucy, what, it would be different. What about yourself, Lucy? Um, so I was, I had just come out of a long-term relationship and, do you know, it's funny because I felt like, I felt like I gave myself cancer because I had come out of a long-term relationship and I was so miserable for like a year solid. I cried a lot. I was really down a lot of the time and I can't, I felt like it triggered it. I know that it doesn't necessarily work like that. But it, it, I just really felt like, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. I, know, I just I, I get like, I guess I that so... you feel that, yeah. People talk about stress can <laughs> yeah. be a, a contributory yeah. factor and so on. But being I miserable like does so not lead low. to cancer. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I, agree. Though, I thought the same. I was like, the stress, maybe I, mm. you know, maybe the stress yeah, did I it. Thought, I thought it was my own fault. And I, so I was really down and really miserable beforehand. Um, I did date during <laughs> during treatment. Um, I remember I, we had, I had a date kind of set up with like a, somebody that I, kind of knew so it wasn't like a blind date but I had chemo that day and I completely forgotten so when I said to him like oh I've actually got chemotherapy today he was just like okay well I'll come oh and I was just oh, wow. and I was like oh okay come on then so I um told my nurse in advance I said look listen you need to get me a really good seat like a window seat in the chemo <laughs> ward um close to the door so it's like maybe airy. a little candle yeah don't <laughs> yeah, you put should me have in... asked for a rose and a candle <laughs> I was like don't put me in room two with like the really like sad people put me with like the people that are a bit lively just yeah. to kind of add towards my date vibe um did my makeup put on my favorite wig because I was completely bored at that point um you know really made an effort and um my my nurse bless her she really like um accommodated us she, she made sure that because you can only have a certain amount of visitors sometimes otherwise it gets too crowded so she made sure that my visitor was able to come that day and um yeah we ordered a takeaway to the hospital and Brilliant. we sat and watched netflix on my laptop oh my god i'm guessing pre-covid times yeah this was before yeah. COVID, yeah. just yeah. before covid yeah Shot. good luck getting yeah. anyone in now yeah <laughs> that's so, so yeah, cool I, was, I love that story i was absolutely dating during um during treatment and often like I remember the first time I stayed at a guy's house and I just thought you know because of the Zolodex the hot flushes mm. I was so nervous about having hot flushes and just being a nuisance and um all night long I was like getting up getting out of bed and I felt so I felt really embarrassed I felt like mm. this is such an inconvenience why can't you just go to sleep like you're supposed to mm. and just be normal um and it was my first time sort of like staying at this guy's house that I'd been seeing for a little while. And he was so accommodating. He was just like, Lucy, honestly, take your wig off. Because that must be making you really hot. And I was like, no, it's fine. With like sweat dripping down my neck. <laughs> I'm fine. I don't need to take my wig off. Because I just didn't want to be, I just, I wanted to be really feminine. I didn't want to be bald. Yeah. I wanted to be cute in my mm. cute pyjamas that I just bought for that specific night with, you know, my wig on. Um, So it, there's been like, 
points that were good and then points that weren't yeah. as you know sure. points that kind of remind you and you're just like also when I have not hot flushes dating. like when I have my hot flushes my boyfriend can feel it like he knows that mm. I'm having them before I even have them because your body gets the so heat, warm like, yeah. yeah it's like you're having one you're having one get off <laughs> I'm like, what? And then I just then start dripping in sweat. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I am. He's like, yeah, get away from me. Too hot. Too hot. <laughs> Charlotte, you, you talked about the, the the stresses on your marriage. Your husband is mm-hmm. in the States. You are here. Uh, I want to ask you a question which you don't have to answer. Do you think your marriage will survive you going through cancer? No. Really? I don't. Oh, Charlotte. Oh, my God. I'm really sorry. So sorry, Charlotte. Why do you feel that? It's just not something, you know, that any couple at this age should be going through. I'm sorry. No, please don't say sorry. Sorry. Please do not say sorry. You have nothing to say sorry for. Yeah, I mean, for us, we are, I mean, we're quite... We have quite a unique situation anyway, obviously, with, with him being American and me being British. It was never, it wasn't really easy from the outset, you know, um, but we've we've been together for five years and at the beginning it was, it was doable, you know. I was fit and healthy, he was fit and healthy, you know, we could, I did lots of flights backwards and forwards and as did he. Um, I just think there are a number of factors that have made this so, so difficult, you know. It's the long distance, it's you know families it's um the the fertility side you know I know that puts so much pressure on him because he you know he was 25 I was 26 that's so young to be thinking I mean we we had discussed children before but I think you know what he said to me at the time was he was petrified that if one day we did have children I may not be around to see them grow up and he may Mm. have to do it by himself so that's something that you know was a lot for him and it has it's been a mixed bag really like at times he's just been absolutely fantastic he's made me feel really special and made me feel beautiful still um but then at other times obviously I understand that he is a victim in this as well and it has been incredibly hard for him I think the tough part for him is that you know I've had this incredible community of other women that are doing this at the same time but he hasn't been in contact with anyone any man of a similar age that is supporting his wife or girlfriend or anything through this so it's been really really hard um and as I said at the moment I'm also in the middle of like an immigration thing you know because at the time I was I was um the plan was originally to move over there so there are just so many factors that you know it would be tough even without cancer but Cancer just seems to have been the final blow, I think. It's been really, really tough. Okay. Well, I'm. thank you for sharing that with us and feeling that you could share that with us. Um, you talked about the community there, Charlotte. Do you, This is my kind of penultimate question, really. Do you feel that only women of your age understand what... I mean, I'm 53. Do you think because I'm a lot older than you, I can't understand your cancer. Do you feel more comfortable talking about cancer with women of your own age? Uh, I don't, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's that women who are older can't understand. I just think that there are a few differences in, you know, just because of where we are in our life. Um, So it's not that 
you don't understand I think just for us it's there are a couple of little extras to add into it add into the whole ordeal but you know as much as there are it's awful to be diagnosed in your 20s there are some some benefits in the sense that you know your body is tends to be stronger and more able to bounce back quicker so that's what I try to remind myself whenever I think about this Lucy I think for me, um, it's similar to what Charlotte said. There, are, There's always going to be something you have in common. And I, I realised that when I was having like radiotherapy, I made friends with this man that was in his 80s. And we, we had things in common. We had things to, to share, experiences that we could share. So I think almost with any type of cancer, there's always going to be at least one thing you have in common with somebody. But I do still feel that the experience is a little bit different when it's someone like you and that could be what whatever that means to you whether it's someone that grew up in the town that you grew up in or somebody that's the same ethnicity as you or somebody that's like an only child like you so the more similar that person is to you the easier it is to relate because you have so many more shared experiences um Mm. so when I've met women that are my own age and um have got a child as well and we have so so many similar concerns Mm. like oh you know I met a girl that she's pretty much my age has a child that's a similar age to my son um and we both had that kind of question of when will we have our next child and mm. will my son be a teenager by the time I have another child will I even get the chance to and I had my son so young and I always knew that there were some experiences I missed out on and I wanted to do again will I ever get to have the chance to do those things that I didn't get to do when I was 18 so it's the more like I said the more similar the person is to you the easier it is to relate yeah 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 I agree I think I know that you know a lot of the women that um message me that are older like they do understand where I'm coming from in terms of the things that I speak about that they always message and say oh I feel that as well or like I know that and I know that they do understand um but also similar to what the girls are saying I think when you're talking to someone that is more your age or in you know closer age you just feel like they just get it a little bit more just because there are certain things that do go on when you're you know in your 20s that mm. may not when you're in your 40s or 50s or like something like I every time I went to the hospital and then they always ask for your date of birth they always say oh can you confirm your date of birth and so you always have to give it and every time they'd go oh so young everyone like, stares don't they I yeah, have it if you say yeah. 90 uh, yeah 1994 everyone's like what yeah exactly. the looks that you get and then like under their breath they're, oh so young and I'm like yeah I'm fully aware of that thanks <laughs> but things like, you know and things like that when I then speak to women that are the similar age as me mm. it's it's nice because then they're like, oh God, I get that as well. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, isn't it so annoying? And it's just those kind of little things that you have in common um, that it's sometimes it is just easier to sort of speak to someone that is closer to your age that's going through that same experience. And it's not the fact that other women don't understand. Sure. It's just there are certain things that, that are relevant happen. to you in your 20s. Yeah, yeah why, exactly. Why, why is it, how annoying is it when people say, oh, so young? Oh, it's, it's so annoying. Can you explain why? Like explain why. Um, I think for me, it's because it's a constant reminder. Like I'm aware that I'm young. I'm aware that I'm a young cancer patient. I'm aware that I was diagnosed when I was 25 and, you know, I had so much change and quite a lot taken away from me. Um, and I don't need reminding of that fact that I'm so young. Charlotte, you just said you feel like a freak. 
it no it does at times it makes you feel like oh my gosh what like why is you know I think that people must think that I am I've lived unhealthily or something yeah. I've done something to you know maybe I'm just a, a sick person but like if they'd seen me even you know 18 months ago they never would have ever would have thought that but it does yeah. make you think um okay what has gone on and sometimes you feel like you have to like defend your lifestyle like I don't yeah. smoke I don't yeah. drink yeah like, to just almost justify it yeah. Yeah. yeah um yeah okay final question and I always end with this question with whoever we're talking to whatever the the subject in terms of breast cancer what advice Lucy I'll start with you would you give to a young woman who might be listening to this podcast right now who has been diagnosed with breast cancer the first thing I'd say is just because the doctor has said it doesn't mean it's gospel okay um I got the advice from other cancer patients that I could dictate my own path and I could decide how long I'm going to be around and I can choose the quality of my life. And it made such a difference to how I kind of viewed my situation. Um, I will also say that when you are having a tough time, you don't have to try and be strong. Mm. People love to say, you know, you're so strong. I, you know, if it was me, I, I wouldn't have made it. I'd be dead. And I'm just like, well, thank you very much. Do you know what? Forget all that crap that people say to you. You do not have to be strong. You don't have to be. Sometimes you can break down. Sometimes you mm. can feel crap. And it's so important to let the people around you know, because I think for me, I made the mistake of trying so hard to be um, this superhero, this superwoman that never complains, never has a problem. And on my third chemo, I, I got sent home because my white blood cells were so low. I could barely even walk really? because I was trying so hard to be strong. I didn't complain. Mm. And well, that's how I saw it. I did. It was yeah. not, it's not even complaining. It's just speaking and saying what you felt. Um, so I think I'd say to anybody, tell people how you're feeling, tell people what's going on physically, mentally, all of that. Because now I find that whilst I'm not dealing with so much of the active treatment, I'm suffering in the sense that People look at me and go, oh, do you know what? Your hair's starting to grow back. Your eyebrows are coming back. You're okay now. And you don't have that, that support around you anymore. And mm. when I do kind of turn around and say, well, actually, my mental health is on the floor, people are shocked. They're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think you'd be like that because you were so strong through the hard bit. Mm. Everything yeah. is the hard bit. So mm. advocate for yourself. Ask for help and let people know, look, I'm not doing really well right now. And I still need help, even though I don't look like it. I still need help. So mm. those are the things that I would. That's the advice that I would give out. Thank you. And very don't apologise for it as yeah, well. Absolutely. So many people apologise for being sad or apologise if they start crying. It's so don't yeah. apologise. Do it. <laughs> We're human. We literally. <laughs> What's your advice, Fran? Um, I would say that you're not alone. When I was diagnosed with being young, I felt completely on my own at the start because I'd never known anyone to have had it at my age. And then now I know there's a lot of us. There are so many of us out there. Um, and there are so many support groups that you can be part of um, and reach out and ask for help if you need the help. And they can, you know, people can, like your team and the hospital can direct you to support groups, um, things like Trek Stock and stuff like that, like young cancer groups. Um, because, yeah, you're not going to be on your own 
through this experience there are so many of us and something that I always say to people as well is just take it one step at a time don't think Mm. about the full experience that you're going to be going through literally just take it one day to one step yeah Yeah, Yeah, even to the point that I was always I would just think okay what's my next step a scan right that's all I need to do not think Mm. about the result not think about you know if it's a good result what does that mean if it's a bad result what does that mean just I've just got a scan I'm just going to go in do the scan go home that's my next step and then just do it literally point by point okay I'm going to go and collect my results now that's it I'm just going to need to sit there and I'm going to need to hear my results. I'm not going to think about what about the result? Mm. What if it's this? What if it's that? Mm. So just breaking it down into one step for me really helped going through that experience. Um, And yeah, similar to Lucy, just reaching out when you need the help. Um, And similar, I, a lot of people were surprised that recently I've actually reached out and I've said to people, do you know, I'm not actually okay at the moment. I'm, you know, I'm still potentially in some ways I'm actually feel more, uh, I have lower moments now than I did when I was going through treatment because yeah, some, I, I somewhat feel like I shouldn't be. It so was justified sort of then. Says, yeah, exactly yeah. that. And it was justified this, then. Yeah. There's this belief that we have to like bounce back as well once yeah. active treatment's done. Yeah. yeah, and it's okay to know that when treatment is over, like if you don't bounce back, that's normal. Mm-hmm. It's completely normal to actually feel like you're not bouncing back and that it's actually going to take a lot longer than what people deem it but don't hesitate to remind people of that fact and you know I still say to my friends now like when they say oh it must be so great that you're not in treatment I remind them yeah I am I am in treatment Mm. and even if I wasn't do you think that you know all of the emotional and mental health effects of my active treatment actually have just kind of completely gone away and like cancer is just now no longer part of my life no it isn't it's still very much there so um yeah okay just being an advocate for your own self and making people aware of that charlotte um i would say just read this is a basic one but really be kind to yourself and lean into yourself because i think that's it's a i don't want to sound cliche but you learn so much about yourself through this and you know when you have people that you know might have let you down or maybe not have been there haven't been there for you I think it's really important to go within and actually find that strength and also for me it was you know just never I've never blamed myself because I just think there is this is hard enough without being at war with yourself um and that is you know I don't beat myself up if I have a chocolate bar I don't beat myself up if I have a glass of wine it's just you know everything in moderation and just yeah not ever feeling like you have to meet certain goals just literally be happy like just remain calm and be happy that's just what's got me through and like you said Fran I could only ever think about things like one month in advance I think um I didn't really let myself think beyond that because there are so many things to consider that it could be completely overwhelming. To be honest, Fran said one step at a time, one day at a time, not a month, not a month. Um, (laughs) A month is big in my book. Yeah, same, 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 same. Just the step. (laughs) (laughs) Lucy, Charlotte, Fran, thank you so much. Thank you for being so open. Your words will help so many people. Honestly, they really will. Thank you so much for having us on. Not at all, not at all, not at all. And if you want any more information about breast cancer, please do go to the Future Dreams website. This is 
a six foot six and factory originals production you can contact me at any time on instagram or tiktok i'm at vic derbyshire or i'm on twitter as well thank you so much for listening and thank you again ladies thank you thanks thank you Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity hopes you found this podcast helpful. We fund awareness, support and research. If you would like to help us do more, please text WeCare to 70500 to make a £5 donation or visit our website at futuredreams.org.uk forward slash donate. Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity will receive 100% of your donation. Text cost your donation plus one standard rate text message, UK only. Always get the bill payer's permission. We would like to contact you on your mobile phone with news and updates. If you would rather opt out, then please add no info to the end of your message. For example, we care, no info. Thank you again for listening.